Please turn to Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. Ruth 4, the ending is actually going to put us in the perfect place to look at Christ's church because we're going to see the lineage that God provides through whom uh, to bring Jesus. Ruth 4, verse 13, we'll be reading to the end of the book. This is God's word. Hear it. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would incline our hearts to it. Holy Spirit, I ask that you give us the gift of illumination to be able to see the truth of what you have inspired and put into this book. Thank you that uh, all scripture is God-breathed, that no prophecy ever came about by the will of man, but men were moved along by your Holy Spirit, and so they wrote. And so, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes. Where we need to be convicted, would you convict us? Where we need encouragement, would you encourage us? Where we need comfort, would you comfort us? We look to you. Father, I thank you that you have provided the Son. Thank you that you make us able to see through your Holy Spirit. And so we ask, Father, be glorified through us being able to see Jesus through the power of your Holy Spirit. Pray this all in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, our verses could well be summarized with two words. Sweet providence. And what is that idea? What is sweet providence? Well, sweet providence is... It is the fruit of the fact that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Romans 8, 28. That we know him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1, 11. It is for the Christian our deepest comfort that no matter how dark a day gets, We know God is at work. 
It means that as difficult as it can be to understand bitter providence, that God is still sovereign in the greatest tragedies of life. He is truly at work to provide good. Providence is the bitter and the sweet together, all things. And we delineate the two to emphasize how amazing God's work is in purposing for good what was purposed for evil. We might ask ourselves, where does this idea of providence come from in the Bible? Well, the first place I think we see from the scriptures, the use, the verbiage, the words of providing and providence is in the story of Father Abraham. R.C. Sproul paints the picture for us where he says this, The first time we find the word providence in the Old Testament is in the narrative of Abraham's offering of Isaac upon the altar. God called Abraham to take his son Isaac, whom he loved, to the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. Quite naturally, Abraham anguished under a great internal struggle with God's commands. And as Abraham prepared to obey, Isaac asked him, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham replied, God will provide himself an offering. The lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham spoke here of Jehovah Jireh which means God will provide. That is the first time the Bible speaks of God's providence, which has to do with God making a provision for our needs. And of course, this passage looks forward to the ultimate provision he has made by virtue of his divine sovereignty, the supreme lamb who was sacrificed on our behalf. So we'll begin the end of the book of Ruth. And as we do so, we're going to look at sweet providence. And we're going to look at it under three headings of the sweet providence for Ruth, the sweet providence for Naomi, and the sweet providence for Israel. And that will, that will inevitably lead us to, be, to have to survey our Savior in the genealogy that rounds out Ruth. So let's first look at the sweet providence for Ruth in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. The woman who entered the story foreign, widowed, childless, vulnerable, and poor is now brought fully into the family of God. She is redeemed from her debt. She is loved, treasured, and cherished. She who was childless for 10 years of her marriage, which we know from Ruth 1.4, she has been given conception. She has a son. She is rich in God. And Christian, I want you to know, if you have been wooed by the grace of God to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, you have been brought into this kind of love. 
It's not as if God has just wiped your sins off a whiteboard in some far off distant classroom. That's what it means that God has brought you into his family, that he's forgiven your sins. No, it's something much better. He has pledged himself to you. As surely as, as Ruth has been brought into marriage with Boaz, and she is his wife, and they will be together as long as they live, God has brought us into relationship with him. He doesn't redeem us from far off. He brings us into his family. Grace is not a thing he throws at us from far away. It is his drawing near to us in itself. His grace is his presence in our life. How can we be absolutely sure of that though? Well, we'll see soon enough in who the son of Ruth is. But the story shifts uh, from Ruth very quickly, and it's an odd thing because we would imagine the book of Ruth would finish talking all about Ruth, but the story shifts to Naomi. And so we see sweet providence for Naomi. We see things come full circle for her. The women who asked her in chapter 1, is that you, Naomi? To which she responded, uh, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for I am bitter. They now proclaim her as blessed by Yahweh, who has provided a redeemer for her. Ruth 4.14. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse." we need to ask ourselves, what is this redeemer to Naomi? This redeemer they speak of, the women speak of to her. Well, he is at least three things. First, he is a restorer of life. Literally in the Hebrew, he causes life to return. Return, repent. You might remember that great theme of chapter one, the Hebrew word shub, which means return or repent, appeared 12 times in chapter one. It now appears again in that it says, God is the restorer of life. God causes life to return. What Naomi once said in the depths of her pain, that Yahweh has caused me to return with nothing, empty, The phrase is now turn to a redeemer being provided who will cause life to return to her. What does this mean for us? The difficult, sometimes hard to accept truth that God is in control of absolutely everything gives way to the overwhelming glory that God can cause life to return. 
Have you made a mess of everything? Have you had a bad decade? Hear the words of God to his people in the book of Joel. Joel 2, 24 and 25. The threshing floors. Does that bring back a scene in the book of Ruth in your mind? The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. That the, uh, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. The people of God in the book of Joel have rebelled against their creator. They made a mess of everything. God had given them the commandments. God had given them kings. God had showed them the way to live. And they said, we don't want you. We want your stuff. We don't want to live like the people of God. We want to live like every other nation. They turned from the true and living God to false gods that could never save. And God sent a locust horde to desolate their crops. That they might be awakened to the true state of their poverty. That they might see there's something I need more than just food today. I need to be reconciled to the creator God. And then, after that, he promises to them, I will restore to you the years the locusts ate away. God promises to do the impossible. To restore things that no longer exist. Wasted years, he will give back somehow. What has been thrown away, he will completely restore. What has died, he will make come to life again. Now this prophecy and promise, it's fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit. At the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, the writer of Acts quotes this passage from Joel 2, that young men will dream dreams and old men will have visions and that the Spirit will be poured out on all of God's people. And so what this means for us is if you, you know I'm empty, you know you're spiritually broke, bankrupt, you can't see how God could restore all the years you've wasted, Turn to Christ. Trust in him. And the moment you trust in Christ, God's spirit will fill you and begin the great work of causing life to return. A work of restoring, making you whole again. Of restoring the years the locusts had eaten away. Some of us in this room just feel unclean. Just feel, we know I'm not whole. Let alone holy, I'm not even whole. I would want to remind you of something unique that happens in the Bible when Jesus comes. For all of history, the unclean people in the Old Testament needed to shout out their uncleanliness or they needed to get away from what was clean. 
So if different things happen to you, you need to go outside the dwelling place of most people so you didn't infect someone else. Because up to this point in history, every time that which is unclean comes into contact with that which is clean, it makes it dirty. But when Jesus comes and the Holy One of Israel reaches out and touches lepers and touches sinners for the first time in all of history, that which is clean makes the unclean clean. Jesus doesn't get dirty by coming near to you. You become clean. He will cause life to return. But not only will he cause life to return, but he is a nourisher of old age. Hear the words of God in the book of Isaiah. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. Into gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. So this statement that he is a nourisher of old age, it brings into focus something that we might have wrongly assumed about who this Redeemer is. Because up to this point, I had been thinking the Redeemer is Boaz, who has been the kinsman Redeemer of Ruth. But we have to ask ourselves, how is Boaz, a man who is older in age, going to be Naomi's nourisher in her old age? And suddenly we start to realize the Redeemer the author is talking about is the child. I want you to know, Christian, that God is able, we're going to sing in a song, that Jesus the Messiah holds forever those whom he loves. That you don't need to live in fear that one day God will just abandon you. That one day God will change his mind. That how he felt about you yesterday is not guaranteed tomorrow. So keep up the act. Keep up the performance. No, he is a nourisher of old age. He has made, he will bear, he will carry, he will save. It means as your body is failing, God is still faithful, that he is still with you. Even to gray hairs, he will carry you. He's not only the one who causes life to return, not only a nourisher of old age, but he is more than enough. The second half of verse 15 summarizes what we could spend the rest, of, the rest of eternity trying to exhaust with words. It says this, For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
Now, the author is explicitly saying that Ruth is to Naomi more than seven sons. You might remember from the last few weeks how Naomi receives six measures of grain, like more than enough, over the top. But do you know what's even better than six measures of grain? The loving kindness seen in Ruth, which is more to her than seven sons. But what this also, by extension, means is that this son is already more than enough. Christian, what God has in his grace given to you is grace. Undeserved. And if you don't see the riches of the treasures you have in Christ no earthly gift will ever be enough for you. And I want, I want you to know that, not so that you are discouraged, but so that you would actually be saved from the discouragement that that's eventually going to deliver. If you don't see the riches you have in Christ as a Christian, you'll be as a person who has millions in the bank but lives in poverty. You'll always anxiously be looking around when there's endless peace available for you. God is more than enough. And in Christ, we have all the spiritual blessings of God. John Newton once said, Everything he sends is needful. Nothing which he withholds can be needful which means that God is good and he is wise and he is your father and he knows what you need and he's going to be faithful to give it to you. And so at times we might not understand why don't I have this or why hasn't this happened? But we have to say it can't be it's not because God is holding out on us. It's not as if there's some spiritual blessing which some people can have but which God will withhold from you. There isn't secret knowledge that you can't have. He has, he has given us all things we need pertaining to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. He is more than enough. And in Christ, you have all the spiritual blessings of God. So as we move on, we finally see the sweet providence that is provided for Israel. Verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So this is kind of funny. I can't really imagine this happening in our church or in the city of Carpinteria, but this is the lone example in the Old Testament of a community naming a child. Right? So all the women of the town got together like, oh, no, no, you don't get to name your kid. We're naming him. The kid's name is Obed. Uh, so I can't really imagine that happening here, but in more familial and tribal cultures, uh, maybe it's possible. But this is even the lone example of a community together in the Old Testament naming a child. And they say, a son has been born to you, Naomi. ponder that for a while. Yeah, that's Ruth's son, but Naomi, that's your son too. 
I wonder how many Israelites during this time cried out to God for a deliverer. The book was written in the time of the judges when everything was in disarray. The book of Judges is summarized by the last sentence that says, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I wonder if they asked for just a better judge than last time. God, just give us a better judge than last time. Or if maybe they started looking around and asking for a king. God, make us like those other people. Give us a king. But undoubtedly, people were crying out to God to provide. And what we see in the providence of Obed is the providence of the greatest king Israel would ever have. Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. I also wonder what prayers are going up in this room. What hopes and yet unfulfilled desires are being lifted up to God, what we're asking God to do that we haven't seen him done. We haven't seen him uh, done yet. I wonder what things that we have asked for for years And the way I think we should allow the book of Ruth to inform the way we pray and the way we think about these things is that we would be wise to learn from the providence for Israel that every single prayer pursued far enough will turn to praise. Eugene Peterson is quoted in Tim Keller's great book, on prayer, uh, and he explains this theme by uh, opening up our eyes to be able to see what's going on in the book of Psalms. He says this, all true prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry and fearful the experiences it traverses, ends up in praise. It does not always get there quickly or easily. The trip can take a lifetime. But the end is always praise. There are intimations of this throughout the Psalms. Not infrequently, even in the middle of a terrible lament, defying logic and without transition, praise erupts. Psalm 150 the last psalm, does not stand alone. Four more hallelujah psalms are inserted in front so that it becomes the fifth of five psalms that conclude the Psalter. These five hallelujah psalms are extraordinarily robust. This means no matter how much we suffer, no matter our doubts, no matter how angry we get, no matter how many times we have asked in desperation, how long, prayer develops finally into praise. Everything finds its way to the doorsteps of praise. This is not to say that other prayers are inferior to prayer to praise, only that all prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. Don't rush it. 
It may take years, decades even, before certain prayers arrive at the hallelujahs, at Psalm 146 to 150. Not every prayer is capped off with praise. In fact, most prayers, if the Psalter is a true guide, are not. But prayer is always reaching toward praise and will finally arrive there. So, our lives fill out in goodness. Earth and heaven meet in an extraordinary conjunction. Clashing symbols announce the glory, blessing, amen, hallelujah. Every single thing you pray for one day you will praise God for the way he answered. Even if we never see it here on this earth, we will see it thereafter that God was always wise, that God was always good, and we will give him praise for the way he has dealt with his people. John Piper says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And you're aware of three of them. And so, as Peterson says, this doesn't mean that every prayer is a praise. It doesn't mean that we understand. It doesn't mean that your breakthrough is coming tomorrow. But it means on that far side of resurrection, hope, and life, you will praise God for every single prayer you offered up to him that he heard and answered. And so look at the providence for Ruth. Look at the providence for Naomi. Look at the providence for Israel. And let us in faith and in hope keep praying, keep trusting, keep moving forward in faith. Now, we have a genealogy in front of us for the next verses. And this isn't something uh, that I want us to speed read, right? That's what I do usually when I come along the genealogies and numbers and chronicles. I'm just, okay, cool. I get to do my checks pretty fast in the morning. Um, but I know that feeling, but I, I have a crazy desire. Um, I want us to get goosebumps as we go through this genealogy. I want us to understand why it's here in this scripture. And I also, I want you to know uh, that reading through it the first few times, uh, I didn't totally get it, but this isn't what we're going to be looking at and talking about. It's not like secret knowledge that no one else can get uh, with a good study Bible or maybe uh, just entry-level commentary. Take a little bit of time and you figure out who these different people are and this genealogy will open up. So I want you to know that it's not going to be secret knowledge kind of stuff. This is things you can get with a good study Bible. Uh, But we're going to to walk through this. And I'm praying that our eyes are lifted up. Because in reading this, we are surveying the landscape of our Savior. So let us together survey the Savior. Now these 
are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The genealogy begins with Perez and stretches 10 generations. There are 10 names present. And so instead of the 10 years of barrenness of Ruth that we saw in chapter 1, verse 4, the last mention of 10 in the book of Ruth will be of life. And we need to understand something that's a little foreign to us, and that is in the Bible and into this culture, genealogies are everything, right? This is your history and your inheritance. It's your hometown. It's your pride. It's your joy. And so uh, an Israelite or someone super well-versed in the Bible, as they read of a genealogy that consists of 10 generations, something might be evoked in their mind. And that's the fact that there are two other men in the Bible who have genealogies that stretch 10 generations, Noah and Abraham. Now, what's unique about these men uh, is God made covenants with them for Israel. To Noah, he promised to never destroy mankind by a flood again. And to Abraham, he promised a son and to bless all nations through his seed, through that son. And so this immediately should make us wonder, what's going on here? Is there another promise that's about to be made? God will make another covenant with this man of 10 generations. Because this genealogy terminates on David. And in 2 Samuel 7, the promise is given to David that his throne will be established forever. Which is to say, the Messiah, the anointed one, the holy one of Israel, the son of man and son of David will come through David's line. The Messiah himself will come through it. David, that forgotten son from the town of Bethlehem would produce in his line, Jesus, the eternal son of God. And so as Christians looking back into this genealogy in the book of Ruth, we see that Ruth was always and has always been about more than giving just bread. It was about giving us the bread of life. It was about more than just giving us a son. It was about giving us the son of God. It was about more than a human redeemer. It was about God draped in humanity being our redeemer. It was about more than providing a king for Israel. It was about providing for the earth, the king of kings. But this is actually even better than you thought. Maybe you're sitting through these sermons of Ruth and loving the beauty of what God is doing and admiring the beauty but as an outsider. 
maybe nobody even looking in on your life would think of you as an outsider. But you are distant from God. You keep arms length. You have your reasons for keeping distance from God and his people. You have sin. You have shame. And not sin like others seem to have. Not shame like I got a B on my report card instead of an A. Shame that makes you want to promise you'll never tell anyone the things you've done or that have been done to you. I'll go to the grave hiding this. Well, I want to close by telling us about the three women that are implicitly in the genealogy of Ruth that Matthew in his genealogy makes explicit. So let's start where the genealogy starts. Let's start with Perez. Perez was the son of Tamar. And Tamar was an outsider who married one of Judah's sons. You know how we sing about the Lion of Judah? So that's Judah uh, from whom Jesus will come. And the son died and Judah promised Tamar that he would give her another one of his sons as a kind of kinsman redeemer, a concept we've become familiar with in the book of Ruth. But he was lying and he never fulfilled his promise. And so desperate and in a terrible situation, Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law, Judah, and conceived Perez and another son. And this is where our genealogy begins. And we know from Deuteronomy 23 Uh, that this line wouldn't be considered full Israelite citizens. They wouldn't be considered full Israelite citizens because they came from a father-in-law sleeping with his daughter and that it would be 10 generations until this line was fully put back into and thought of true Israel citizens. And so Boaz is the 10th generation from Perez. And God was working every day of every year of every generation. Next, we have Salmon. And Salmon is the father or grandfather in these genealogies. Sometimes, uh, sometimes the person referred to as this person fathered this person. It could be a grandfather, a great-grandfather. Uh, they're teasing out theological truths and would think of people as their father. Like we would say, Father Abraham. Well, for none of us in this room, our father is truly Abraham from the land of Ur, right? None of us, that's true. Uh, That's how we think of fathers. So we have Salmon, who's the father or grandfather of Boaz. He took Rahab. Do you remember that woman? That prostitute from the land of Jericho? He took Rahab, and she became his wife, an outsider who was once a prostitute. And then down the line, we have Ruth, who we've become very familiar with, an outsider widow who was childless, unable to provide for herself. And lastly, actually, David will introduce one more woman into the genealogy of Jesus, Bathsheba, that woman whom he took advantage of, committed adultery with, 
and then had her husband killed to try to cover it all up. Now, why tell you all of this? Because I want you to see, as one commentator said on this genealogy, grace flows where the world may see only shame and cause for rejection. Why would all these people be included in the lineage of Jesus? Why did Jesus come? Well, Matthew makes it abundantly clear for us after the genealogy he provides. And the good news of Jesus, according to Matthew, he says this, she, that is Mary, another woman who to outsiders looked shameful, had a questionable marriage, it seemed, from the outside. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Man or woman struggling with shame Jesus came in the lineage of people who had done shameful things and had shameful things done to them. He came to pay for sins, to identify with sinners and those sinned against. Real sins. Sins that demand the wages of death. Sins that damn people to hell. He came to pay it instead of you. And he hung on a cross, exposed, naked, despising the shame. And what he has provided is forgiveness for the things that you have done for your sins. He was a friend of sinners. He chose his lineage The sovereign God of the universe chose how he would come into this world. And we have a record of it. And so let there be no doubt. If you are in Christ, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. He is not ashamed to call you sister. He is the restorer of life. He will be a nourisher of you to your old age. He holds forever those whom he loves. He is able to save to the uttermost. And he is more to us than seven sons. He is the son of Abraham. He is the son of Boaz. He is the son of David. He is Jesus. And he has saved us from our sins. And so you come to him. John six thirty seven. I will never cast out those who come to me. You come to him. I'd like to end our time in the book of Ruth, drawing out a few things, a few hoped for marks that, I would, that I'm praying and I would pray would make an impression on our souls. Things that when we hear the word Ruth, these lessons would come to our minds. When we flip through the book in our Bible, we remember 
these things. Let's talk about hope for marks of Ruth on us as the people of God. First, I am hoping that through getting to study the book of Ruth together, we would have a hunger and thirst to know God in his word. Like, you're not going to hear this story with these truths anywhere else. There's not a show on Netflix that's going to give you this lesson. There's not a podcast you'll find that's going to give you the kinds of things that are on offer in God's word. No one gives us this advice when we go to them. And so I'm praying that we as the people of God would have a hunger and thirst to know God in his word, to know that we can understand it, that it's not too hard for us, that we, we can get to know God in the Old Testament, that we can come to a knowledge of who he is and the truth he has revealed, that coming out of this, we would have a deeper hunger and thirst to know God in his word. Here, listen to these words of John Wesley. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach me the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. Oh, that that would be impressed on our souls. A hunger and thirst to know God as he has truly, surely revealed himself to be in his word. Secondly, I hope that Reality Carpinteria has a commitment to embrace being a man or woman of God. That we would look at the story of Ruth, and that we would see the beauty of the fact that God created us male and female, and that we, we together would look at the beauty of the character of Ruth. Now we would encourage that as men and our sisters, and that sisters would strive to embody that by God's grace, that we as men in this church would be informed by the life of Boaz and the one he points to, that we would protect women, that we would provide for those in need, that we would raise up sons who are godly and fear God and know how to treat women, that fathers, you would protect your daughters. That you would be the wall some guy would have to go through to get, be able to get to her. That we would eschew the idea that it means nothing to be a man. It means nothing to be a woman. And we would say, no, it is good and beautiful that God has made humanity male and female. And I'm going to embrace that. And I believe that humanity and society will flourish because of that. That people would look in on here and say, that's different. That's kind of weird. I'm not hearing that anywhere else. But that they would have to say, that's beautiful. But I, that, that's giving life. That we would be informed by the book of Ruth to be a man or a woman of God by his grace. 
next that we would lay the anchors, our anchors, the anchors of our soul in the character and attributes of God, namely his sovereignty and providence. That the truths of who God is, we have seen. We would say, I'm going to lay down my anchor. That which will, when the storms come and the boat is tempted, try to be tossed about, it's going to stay here. That we would take in, lay our anchors in the character and attributes of God. And lastly, that we would have an all-consuming love for the revealed Christ of the scriptures. What is true of the book of Ruth, that it was only ever always about Jesus, is actually true of every book in this book. That we would say, Christ loved me like that. Christ came into that family. Oh, my family isn't too jacked up. My past isn't too sordid and soiled for Christ to redeem. That knowing this truth that Christ came to save sinners would lead us into a deeper awe and all-consuming love for the Christ that this story revealed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you entered into human history. So even for those who might feel so trapped in darkness or so unloved, our guide is not the feeling we have in this moment, but the historical fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. God, I ask in these next moments of worship that what has only been hidden in darkness would come out into the light. That people would see their shame can be brought into the light and they can find that I was actually nailed to the cross 2,000 years ago. That you disarmed spiritual rulers and the demonic forces by nailing their debt to a tree. Jesus, I thank you for the kind of family you came into. I thank you for the great families that are in this church that have been changed by your grace. And I thank you also for the families for whom that is their future and that is their story in the future. I ask that all of us would know that you can be a restorer of life and that you are a restorer of life and you can restore the years that the locusts ate away. And so, Lord, please move mightily upon us. Would we all come to you, Jesus, trusting what you have provided? Thank you that you are a friend of sinners. Thank you that you came to take away our sins. Thank you that you are coming again. We love you. In Christ's name.